Good morning, everyone. I greet you in the name of Jesus. I welcome you to this part of the service. So good to see everyone here and to, yeah, I just have really enjoyed the service this far. Appreciated the testimonies. And Henry, it's, it's good to see you here. Yeah, it is good to be here. Um, this morning, I have titled the message, A Ransom for Many, and maybe in some ways, um, I will be, I'm, I'm going to be building off of what I talked on last time. If you remember, I, the message last time was called Free or Free Indeed. And I had not really intended at that time that I would, I would do this or continue, but as I, it just seemed that's how the Lord led. So here we are this morning. Um, we're going to be, what, what I talked about last time was, was what it means to, I, I, I taught on on. The two kingdoms and, and what it means to be in bondage in one kingdom and then how that we are free in the kingdom of God. And uh, one of the things I did not talk about much is, is what, what takes place or what, how did Jesus' death on the cross, how did that enable us to move from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son? And so... This morning, I would like to do that. Um, so, I'm going to be building on, on the premise that, that we understand that there are two kingdoms. Jesus came in and he brought with him the kingdom of God. And Satan is in control of the kingdom of darkness, which is literally everything that is not a part of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> We're going to be looking at a number of, of different scriptures. I have those on, on the PowerPoint, most of them. And so, in, in, we're, we're really, we're going to be talking about, theologians would call this the, the doctrine of the atonement. And it, the doctrine of the atonement is simply, it deals with what transpired when Jesus came to earth as a man and died on the cross and went back to heaven. <clears throat> and as I as I mentioned, we're going to be we've we're going to be building this this what I'm going to be presenting is um, is based on on the theology that there are two kingdoms. And we'll see a little bit later why that's important. Maybe the first question to think about as we, I guess we're missing a clock back there, that's okay. The first question we're going to be looking at, um, why does it matter? Do we need to understand what happens when Jesus dies on the cross? Can, isn't it enough to just simply believe that, that Jesus died for our sins and if I believe in, on him and confess his name, then I will be saved? 
do, do, we need to, do we need to become theologians and really study into this? And I would like to propose that it is important. And the reason it is important is because as Western Christianity, we have, we have reduced Christianity to an idea that we either accept or reject. And it, in essence, it becomes no different than maybe, let's say, the idea that was there really a man on the moon? How do I know that there was a man on the moon? That's what they tell me, but come on, a man on the moon. And so, do I accept that idea? Some, most people do, I think, but there might be some logical reasons why that you don't need to accept that idea. And the interesting thing is, whether you do or do not accept that idea really doesn't make a very big difference in, in your life. It doesn't make, it, it's not that important. Now most people would agree that whether you believe on Jesus, whether you accept that idea or not, that is important, and it does make a difference in your life. However, if we look at Western Christianity today, how much difference really is it making in the lives of most professing Christians? Are most professing Christians really living a victorious life, or are they simply going through the motions, going to church, teaching some of the principles of Christianity, and saying the right things, and doing the right things, and yet their life really isn't all that more victorious than their non-believing neighbor. <clears throat> so this morning, I would like to look at how can... How does Jesus how does Jesus bring us victory? How does he enable us to live a victorious life? The first thing we're going to be looking at is that there are several different different models for understanding what has happened on what how the atonement looks. And I'm going to be proposing that the, the model or the doctrine that most Western theologians would teach is not consistent with what Scripture teaches and what the early church taught. First thing we're going to do is we're going to look at what, what is taught, how, how, and, and this, this affects us today. We have, as Anabaptist people, we have to some degree... Um, I think we have bought into this some. But in essence, it goes someone, somewhat like this, is that man sinned and became separated from God. Therefore, man is, man is separated from God and is, has sinned, so there is... In order to be reconciled, there needs to be some sort of punishment or there needs to be some sort of payment made to God in order to 
uh, to appease God's wrath. Jesus makes that payment. Jesus comes in the form of man because man had to make the payment to God. Jesus comes in the form of man and takes that payment, that penalty of sin by dying on the cross and therefore reconciles man back to God because the payment is now made. There's a number of things we're going to look at that about this model or this teaching that I think differ from what Scripture teaches. The first one is, if Christ paid for our sins, where is forgiveness? So if Kyle owes me a debt, if he owes me money because he, I had loaned him some money or for whatever reason, and he comes to me and he says, I can't pay it. And then Willis comes along and he pays me for the debt. Have I forgiven Kyle's debt? I don't think so. Let's look at what Scripture teaches. Matthew chapter 18, this is where Peter, and, and then, then came Peter to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Till seven times? And then Jesus said unto him, I say not unto thee until seven times, but until seventy times seven. Therefore is the kingdom of heaven likened unto a certain king, which would take account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one was brought unto him, which owed him ten thousand talents. But forasmuch as he had not to pay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, and his wife and children, and all that he had in payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay thee all. Then the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him the debt. Now notice what Jesus says here. Verse 23, he says, therefore is the kingdom of heaven. He's telling them this story because this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. So he gives them an analogy of how that debts are forgiven. And then the story goes on, but for the sake of our discussion this morning, we're going to stop here, and we're just going to see that Jesus forgives debts. That's what Jesus just said. The second thing we want to look at is I think this model depicts an angry God. It overemphasizes the wrath of God. And I want to be careful here because Scripture certainly does teach us that there is such a thing as the wrath of God, as an emotion of anger. However, I think we, we sometimes, in our English language, we see the word wrath and we think of the emotion anger. And with that is, is maybe getting back with someone for spite. You have, you have violated me, and therefore because I am in power, I will 
for spite, I will get even with you. If we go back to the Greek and look at the Greek word there, the Greek word is orge, and it carries with it, it says it's a properly desire, that is, by analogy, violent passion or justifiable abhorrence. And then it goes on to say it, it does carry with it the idea of anger, the emotion anger, but what I like to look at is that it, it, has, it has the idea of separation, of being cut off, justifiable abhorrence. And so if we think of the wrath of God, I would like to, rather than thinking of, and I think this is what we see in Scripture and the testimony of, of the early church, rather than an angry God getting even with us for spite, being separated from God equals the wrath of God. Being separated from God means that you are under the power and control of Satan. And who wants to be there? <clears throat> to illustrate, I'd like to look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, familiar passage. This is how it reads in the King James. Among whom also... We all had our conversation in times past in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. If we read it in the International Standard Version, it says this, Indeed, all of us once behaved like them in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and senses. By nature... We were destined for wrath, just like everyone else. So by nature, because we were a part of the kingdom of darkness, we were destined to be eternally cut off from God. Just, just like everyone else. An example of that might be, suppose, suppose Jason and I are best friends, and we just do everything together. And... One evening, he comes over, and we had something planned, but on the way over, he got sprayed by a skunk. Bad. Now, Jason's still my friend, and I love him, but until he gets cleaned, we are not doing anything together. In fact, <laughs> can't stand it. I love him. But I'm going to, there's a separation. And so that's the picture that I think we see in the New Testament of, of the wrath of God, of being separated from God. Not that God is angry at us and is just, just, waiting, for to, just waiting for a chance to strike us down or, or to get even with us. <clears throat> The third thing is, this model really has no room for the kingdom of God. It's just Jesus, man sinned, and so we, we disobeyed God, and therefore God has to punish us, or some form of payment has to be made in order for us to be reconciled again. And it doesn't, it really doesn't give any room, or doesn't give any... Um, it doesn't lead to any kind of 
sanctification and, and reconciliation and, and growing in Christ. It's just simply a, it's just simply a legal transaction that takes place. You, you have now accepted Christ and therefore your sins are blotted out and your name is now in the book of life. The fourth thing, and I, I just thought of this, and I, I don't have it on the PowerPoint, but this model also does not, does not give any kind of, or very little, recognition to, recognition to the resurrection. And, and we know that by Jesus rising again from the dead, that's how he overcame the power of death and the, and, and the power of Satan. So, in order for us to understand the ransom model, what I'm going to call the ransom model, so we just talked about what, what I would call the satisfaction model, because Jesus, God's wrath had to be satisfied, and so Jesus died on the cross, and that satisfied God. There's a couple presuppositions that, we, that are required to understand this, this model. The first one is simply the two kingdom, the model, the, the two kingdom um, theology that we see in the New Testament. If, if we don't understand this, we're going to have a really hard time understanding how, how the ransom model of, of the atonement would, would work. The second thing is, Satan does not have foreknowledge. And maybe we'll, we'll see that a little bit more a little later, why, how, this, uh, how this plays into this. But if we, if we look at the life of Jesus, well, first of all, if we go back to Revelation, to where Satan was cast out of heaven, there at Revelation 12, and we see that Jesus tried to kill, or he tried to stop the coming of Jesus as a baby. And of course, we know the story how Jesus, uh, how Herod tried to kill him as a baby. And then also just throughout the ministry of Jesus, numerous times, uh, you know, the Pharisees picked up stones to stone him, and or they were going to get him. But every time... He escaped because it was not yet his time. So what we see there is that Satan didn't know what was going on, but Jesus was on his turf. He knew the Son of Man was on his turf, and if he could destroy the Son of Man, then, then he, would be in, he would be ruler. Of course, we know that that eventually did happen. Jesus was killed. And the third thing here, and this isn't really, I guess, a presupposition. I'm going to talk about this a little bit. Christ became sin for us. Rather than just simply being a man that took punishment for us, he actually became the sin for us. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. We're going to look at more of that chapter a little later, but this is what it says in verse 21. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, here's what happens here. If Jesus became sin, he had to be under the dominion and control of Satan. Because sin is separation from God. Remember what Jesus prayed there in in John chapter 17 when he says that the unbeliever is condemned already because of what? Because of unbelief. So if there is no belief in, in God, you are separated, you are already condemned. You are already separated from God. Another scripture in Galatians 3 Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. A couple more verses in Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love in whom we have redemption. Notice the word redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Also a little later here in chapter 1 in Colossians 19 and 22, For it pleased the Father that in Him all the fullness should dwell and by Him to reconcile all things to Himself By him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of the cross. And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now has he reconciled. There's that word again. In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. So I'd like to... I'd like to talk a little bit about the words ransom and redeem in order to help us understand what, what the early Christians, what the, the, the people that read this, these letters, when they read the words ransom and redeem, what, what they would think of. I think we all know what a ransom is. If, if, uh, if someone is kidnapped or... You know, someone might steal something and then demand a ransom from, from the original or the true owner. And then, if that, that would be the ransom. If that money is paid, then we, we call that a ransom. <clears throat> Redeem carries with it the idea of, of buying back. Of, of same idea of ransom, kind of, except that it, it, it carries with it the idea that you're buying back, you're paying money for something that rightfully was yours to begin with.
In order for us to, in order to, to illustrate this a little bit, I'd like to tell you the story of, written by C.S. Lewis about the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe in the Chronicles of Narnia. I don't know if any of you have ever read that. Um, I'm guessing some of you have. It's written by C.S. Lewis. It's a children's 12 to 16-year-old level book, maybe. However, I'm, I'm sure Lewis wrote it with the intent of of presenting this this model of of the atonement, and, and simply, there's there's four children: Peter, Susan, and Edmund, and Lucy. And they go to stay with uh, their parents are gone. They go to stay with an old professor, and he lives in this huge house. And in the one room of the house, they find an old wardrobe, and they discover that they can go into the wardrobe and they enter into this mythical land called Narnia. Now, they discover that Narnia is forever frozen into winter and it's under the control of the White Witch. And so... Edmund had met the witch first, and she gave him some of her magic, forget what you called it, candy. It was really, really good. And kind of put a spell on him, and he turned into a traitor. And so they are, the other three don't know this initially, but they... Uh, meet up with other folks, animal folks in this frozen kingdom. And they discovered that Aslan is coming back. Now, they didn't know for sure who Aslan was at first, but the way everybody was so excited about him coming back, they, they figure out that he is the king of the kingdom and that when he comes back, he will regain control from the white witch. So as the story goes, Edmund ends up under the control of the White Witch because he was a traitor and the others are trying to figure out how to rescue him and there's, there's, there's going to be a battle and there's good folks and there's the witch, all the, all the animals and things that people that the witch is under her control and they are Aslan, the lion, he is back. They do meet him, and, and they are confident that they can win the battle. And so they meet, but before they fight, the witch, I'm sorry, let me back up. They discover that the witch is about to kill Edmund, and they rescue him. This is before they had to gather all their armies. So they rescue Edmund back, However, he's, he's still a traitor. He's not really on their side. And so they get together to fight, but the witch calls. She wants to talk to Aslan, the, the lion, the king. And so they, he agreed to it. They had a long, a long conversation. And 
what happened is she reminded him that since Edmund was a traitor, according to the laws of the kingdom, he was rightfully hers. Now, of course, the other children didn't know this, but what had happened is Aslan the king had agreed with the witch that he would take Edmund's place. Edmund would go free and they would kill him. So the children didn't know this, the, the three children, or none of the children. But they happen to see the lion leave. They follow him and he is, he's very... He's very sad, very down, and, and that, so they, they go with him, and, and he says after a while that they need to stop here. And he goes on, and he meets the witch and all her demons. <clears throat> and after they torment him and torture him a while, they tie him up, and all the while he, he is not... He is allowing them to do this. He's like a lamb just being led to the slaughter. Of course, they're hooping and hollering. They think they've really won the victory. And so they tie him up and they put him on this, they had him on this big flat rock and they're getting ready to kill him. And just before they're ready to kill him, the witch reminds him how much of a fool he is because as soon as they have killed him, they will also go and kill everyone else. And so they kill him, and the children are just devastated. They're kind of watching this from a vantage point. And they, the children spend the night there. They the witch and her armies, they all leave to go find the others and to, to really take the kingdom under their control. And when morning comes, the children are finally, they, uh, they're done grieving and they're, they're kind of moving away from the scene. And they are startled by the noise of Aslan coming back to life. Aslan comes back to life in all his power and glory. And they rally the troops and the, in a nutshell, they win the kingdom from the witch and the witch is destroyed forever. Maybe an interesting little side note there, the witch had many, had many prisoners. She had a magic wand and, and she could turn people, animals, trees, why she could turn them into stone. And so as soon as Aslan is back from life, he is releasing these prisoners. And they win the battle, and the kingdom is won from the witch. So the... Analogy in Lewis's little story is simply that that the ransom is paid by Jesus to Satan, and this is why it's important to know that Satan 
did not have foreknowledge. He didn't, he just knew, he knew that in his mind, he could, if he could, if he could kill Jesus, and he didn't understand, or he didn't, he failed to realize or recognize that Jesus had the power over death. I'd like to look now back to Scripture, and then we're also going to look at a number of quotes from some of the early church writers in the Antonicene Fathers. First, we're going to look at a, at a scripture, Mark twelve twenty nine. How can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man, and then he will plunder his house? The early church, the early Christians, they saw this as this analogy, that, or that, like the story that Lewis wrote that Jesus was a strong man, and he went into Hades, into, I'm sorry, Satan is a strong man. Jesus went into his house, bound him, and led all the captives free, as well as provide spiritual freedom from us. He, he paid the ransom to us, therefore Satan no longer has any legal hold on us. Now, obviously, we all know he loves to convince us that he does. Christ fought and conquered. That is because he was a man contending for the fathers. Through obedience, he completely did away with disobedience, for he bound a strong man and set free the weak. That was written, that first quote was written by Irenaeus in the year around 180. This is a letter that was written to Diognetus. The Father himself placed upon Christ the burden of our iniquities. He gave his Son as a ransom for us, the Holy One for the transgressors, the blameless One for the wicked. For what other thing was capable of covering our sins than his righteousness? O sweet exchange, O unsearchable operation, O benefits surpassing all expectation, that the wickedness of many should be hid in a single righteous one, that the righteousness of one should justify many transgressors. In this manner the Lord has redeemed us through his own blood. Redeemed, he's bought us back, giving his soul... For our souls and his flesh for our flesh. He has also poured out the Spirit of the Father for the union and communion of God and man, actually imparting God to men by means of the Spirit. On the other hand, he has joined man to God by his own carnation. <clears throat> Christ is our redemption because we had become prisoners and needed ransoming. That was written by Origen. <clears throat> Origen. This last quote is as well. He submitted to death, purchasing us back by his own blood from him who had got us into his power, sold under sin. 
You see, we were the traitors. We had, in the beginning and in the garden, we had agreed that with Satan that we would be under, under his dominion and power. I'd like to turn now to, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to look at a number of verses there. In order to learn what does this mean for us, how do we, where do we go from here? How does this, how does this view of the atonement grow us into what Christ wants us to be? First thing we're going to see is that. We were all dead. Verse 14, for the love of Christ compels us. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus that if one died for all, then all died. So if one died, we, we were all dead. We were in bondage. We were separated. We were eternally condemned. God's we, we were seeing, experiencing God's wrath. As we know, Christ died for all of us. One died. Since Christ died, what he desires for us is that we all are to live for him. See what, uh, that's in verse 15, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer to themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. So we no longer live to ourselves. We also see this in Romans chapter 6. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey? You are that one slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Now, we're, we're using this in a little bit different context than what Paul is writing here, but I'd like to illustrate here that we are whoever we give ourselves to, we are slaves to, to that, we, we were slaves to Satan. Now Christ has paid the ransom. He has bought us back. Therefore, we are now slaves to him. So if, and an example of that would be if, if Jason is kidnapped, and, and, and we would see this a lot, and I'm sure Paul's readers would understand this in, in, in biblical times, but kidnappings and then demanding a ransom were fairly common at that time, or, or if an army would invade, they would take slaves, and if I bought your ransom, then you would now be my slave. Uh, and so that's what Paul is writing about here. He's saying that Christ has paid our ransom, therefore we are now slaves to righteousness. No longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. 
First thing, we are to regard everyone from a spiritual perspective. Paul says in verse 16 that, that we are... Therefore, from now on, we regard you no, no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. And here again, we see the idea of being bought. For though we walk in the flesh, this is 2 Corinthians chapter 10, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity into the obedience of Christ. What Paul is saying here is that we are, we are not men in flesh and blood. This is a spiritual battle that is being fought, and, and Christ has bought us spiritually. And it's, we are in the spiritual realm. All things are new. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new, cre- new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. So now we're beginning to get a picture of what, what Jesus wants from us. We, we are no longer, we are no longer in, in bondage to, to sin or to Satan under the, in, in his kingdom. We are now slaves to righteousness in the kingdom of God. And so this is, he has given us a ministry of reconciliation. We are his ambassadors with a ministry of reconciliation. Verse 20, now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. So, so we have become his witnesses. We have become the hands and feet of Jesus. <clears throat> This is all possible because Christ became sin for us. I would like to, in closing, I would like to leave you with one thought. And that is, back to what Jesus said, And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
if you remember, this Jesus had been, they had been talking about who is the greatest here in this dialogue. And this is what Jesus leaves with them. <clears throat> Just as the Son of Man gave himself a ransom for many, that's what he's asking us to do. <clears throat> like to pray and then I'm going to ask you to close, James. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much, Lord, that you have loved us. Thank you, Father, that you have bought us. Lord, we are grateful. Father, we, we just confess that you are Lord. We confess, Father, that we are slaves of righteousness, Father. And I pray that you would, that you would enable us to be effective uh, ambassadors, to, to be your witnesses, to, to share your love, to, to serve and to give ourselves a ransom for, for others, Father. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.